he began to see value in U.S. financials as U.S. financials began to roll over. And we know what happened between Q2 of 07 and Q4 of 08 in terms of U.S. financials, obviously a catastrophe of, of biblical proportions in, in the capital markets. He was buying every tick down. He thought that more and more value was being created. And whatever skill we assessed at him reading balance sheets, he clearly didn't have. Oh, by the way, it was three-year lockup money. There was nothing we could do. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Brian Portnoy. Brian, are you ready to rock? I sure am. All right. So Brian Portnoy is the Director of Investment Education at Virtus Investment Partners, where he develops the firm's content on behavioral finance and investment solutions, and has worked in the mutual fund and hedge fund industries for the past 18 years. Before joining Virtus in 2014, he held senior investment and strategy roles, including at Mesero Financial and Morningstar. Brian is the author of The Geometry of Wealth, how to shape a life of money and meaning. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Which he published in summer of 2018. And that's even more cool because you've just published it. The book explores how money figures into a happy life. In 2014, he published The Investor's Paradox, The Power of Simplicity in a World of Overwhelming Choice which helps investors make better decisions about both traditional and alternative investment strategies. He has spoken to audiences globally about investing and decision-making and has lectured at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as part of its leading author series on the history and future of hedge funds. Brian pursued his research and teaching interests in political economy at the University of Chicago, where he earned his doctorate. He earned a BA from the University of Michigan and is a chartered financial analyst, a CFA charter holder like myself. All right, Brian, take a minute, fill in any tidbits about your life. Well, that was an unfortunately long bio, but um, yeah, I just add on top that uh, I, I live in the city of Chicago, a, a small town of 9 million people. Uh, with my wife and, and three wonderful kids, all of one mile from Wrigley Field. So uh, we're excited for hopefully the World Series in, uh, in, in the near future. And uh, beyond that, I, I think you covered it. Okay, good. Nine million. I didn't realize Chicago had that many people. That's about the size, close to the size of Bangkok, so where I am. A little bit slightly different temperature, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think our seasons are probably a little bit more extreme. Yes, exactly. All right. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell your story. Yeah, sure. So for a pretty long period of time, close to a decade, I worked in the hedge fund industry at a fund of hedge funds called Mesero Financial, uh, Mesero Advanced Strategies. You made quick reference to it earlier in my bio. And starting in 2006, 2007 or so, I was the uh, global head of research, hedge fund research uh, for, for the firm. So I was actually based over in London. And at peak, 
uh, we were managing something like $15 billion in client assets, all institutional capital, blue chip pensions, uh, foundations, endowments, sovereign wealth funds. And, you know, across, you know, kind of 15 billion, give or take, we had maybe 80 or 90 investments. So our, our average ticket size, so to speak, was 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 quite large, you know, nor, north of $100 million. And we had certain investments that were north of a, a quarter billion dollars. In that context of helping to direct global research, we made some good decisions and we made some bad decisions. And there were a couple that I was the quarterback on where it did not go well. So do you want me to dive in? Go for it. Okay. Uh, this is a painful one, and I've thought about it so many times. We were building out our uh, global book with an emphasis on European and Asian equities, and it was around 2006 that one of the most successful prop traders in history, as far as we could tell, uh, was spinning out of one of the largest uh, global investment banks. And just given the nature of the network in the hedge fund industry, when top tier prop traders roll out of those organizations and create their own hedge funds, it's a big deal. You know, there's been a number of legendary investors out of Goldman Sachs, uh, in, in particular from both the equity and the fixed income side, and actually on the, the, the currency and macro side as well. This individual who we were doing due diligence on was not from there, but from a very large and reputable organization where, you know, we were able to verify that, that he and a very compact team, just a, a few other guys, were able to generate many, many billions of profits for the bank over a long period of time. And generally, he had a track record of success going back 25 or 30 years. So it was an invitation only uh, opportunity, which in retrospect was part of the problem. Uh, you can be on one side of the velvet rope or the other, and we'll get into that. I, I led the due diligence. It involved doing work in London, doing work in the south of France, doing work in New York, in terms of interviewing not only the portfolio manager, but the entire team, piecing together. Uh, and when someone rolls off of a prop desk and runs a hedge fund afterwards, the prop desk, um, by rule, can't really give you a history of the trade. So you have to sort of piece it together from a variety of different sources. So it really is a mosaic process uh, that, that, that's in play that you know, um, is very much part of the, the, the CFA curriculum from, from way back when, I, I assume it still is. And so you know, we, we were able to, number one, uh, validate that he had um, made some very profitable trades over, o over a long career. Number two, that, uh, and more importantly, there was an investment process behind that, it, meaning that it's not nearly good enough in a due diligence context to see a winning track record. You have to know that there's a process behind it because, you know, put crudely, you need to distinguish between skill and luck. And so, you know, we, we were able to, you know, I think suss out, uh, and it's not as clean as it would be for, you know, say a, a 40 act US-based mutual fund where you've got sort of daily NAVs and, and you can you could look at it like that. That's just not the, at least it didn't used to be the nature of hedge fund due diligence. We dug in um, quite, uh, quite intensely, both on the investment performance and investment process front, as well as on the personal front. On the personal front, this was a guy who was known to be 
relatively brazen, which, which wasn't the most distinguishing feature, especially in the pre-08 hedge fund uh, marketplace. You had a lot of guys that were quite bold, and, and, and this guy was out there. In fact, as was quite uh, fashionable at the time, he would be characterized as an activist. So, you know, there are still famous activists uh, in, in the industry, whether it be, uh, you know, Carl Icahn or Dan Loeb or, you know, very successful gentlemen like that. So the fact that he was bold in terms of his public wranglings to extract value out of the stocks that he was buying, that was just part of the deal. We kind of had invested in lots of activist funds at that point. So it's not like we weren't familiar with that roadmap. Um, and on top of that, he was known for, and we were able to validate uh, that he made very concentrated bets. You know, if you look at, a, at one end of the spectrum, a, a quant fund, for example, might have hundreds or even thousands of small positions. They're going to win or lose based on the underlying factor exposure that comes through those many small positions. And, and, and there's been, you know, firms like Renaissance, for example, that have been just fantastic uh, going by that. But at the far other end, you have uh, track records of certain folks, including this guy and whether it be, a, 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 you know, a Paulson or an Icon or, um, or a Loeb, Pershing Square, Greenlight with David Einhorn, you know, big guys who take very... Uh, big bets. And so he was in that world. He was looking to raise a limited amount of money from a small number of partners. Um, we were one of the firms that was, quote unquote, allowed to do due diligence on him. And he was able to raise really a few billion dollars in a relatively short period of time. And we cut him a check for north of $100 million on day one. So what could go wrong? I mean, when you describe that and you're, you're setting the scene, yeah. it's really I mean, powerful really that like, uh, what more could you have done? Um, so so that, that leads us into the story. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a great setup. Right, right. And, you know, look, there's obviously a, a sample bias in the story because you asked me to talk about a huge screw up. So I'm telling you about a huge screw up. Exactly. But we invested in other long bias, concentrated activist funds that generated just fantastic risk adjuster returns over long periods of time. This is sample bias, I guess, in the, in the good way that we're focusing on a loser uh, because the, the lessons that can be learned are uh, abundant. And in fact, the first book that I wrote, The Investor's Paradox, I spent a lot of time talking about our underlying biases, both as individuals and organizations, and how you can occasionally, uh, hopefully no more than occasionally, end up in a situation like we did with this guy and his organization where he, you know, we, we ultimately invested, I think, more than $200 million in him and he was down more than 50% when everything came due. And so, you know, I, I have the kind of ignominious accomplishment of losing more than $100 million of others, other people's money. Uh, I wasn't the only one on the team, doesn't matter. Um, I was leading the due diligence. It, it, it was on me. It, it, it is on me. I mean, this was 10, 11 years ago at this point, uh, or uh, eight, eight, nine years ago at this point, but still it was on me. And just a lot jumps off the page in retrospect. And I'm not going to, I don't have a, a speech or a script prepared. So let me just kind of rattle off some things. And, and if you want to follow through on, on any of them, I'm happy to. The first was sort of the, the context in which we made the decision, both the exclusivity 
and the pace at which everything was happening. Hard to maybe remember for some that in 2005, 6, 7, even into 2008, hedge funds and fund of funds that invested in hedge funds were taking in billions of dollars. We were taking in upwards of a quarter billion dollars a month at one point, and that meant um, that we needed to put that money somewhere. And so that was on the demand side. And from the supply side, you had a lot of guys working at prop desks and other organizations that were spinning out to do their own thing. They were happy recipients of a, 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 lot, of this, a, a lot of this money. And you know, one of the big lessons is that context or organization matters insofar as someone moving, in, in this particular case, from a prop desk where you have a certain risk management protocol, the nature of your capital balances, the denominator, so to speak, is quite different than it is when you're running a fund with outside capital, where you basically have a fixed, um, a fixed denominator. In a prop desk setting, you don't. I mean, this is really inside baseball and hedge funds, but it's one of those things where, okay, if I'm going to project that this individual is going to be successful in the future based on what he did in the past, one of the questions is, well, is it the same type of scenario? So if I take LeBron James and I move him from the Heat to the Cavaliers to the Lakers, um, is the floor still 90-some feet long? Is the hoop 10 feet high? Yeah, I mean, is the ball the same size on every court? The, the answer is, is yes. In investing, that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, here moving from prop desk to uh, an, a fund, where you have a fixed capital balance. Uh, it could be in the context of what securities they in invest in. Over time, people say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in equities, but I understand the whole capital structure. So now I'm gonna run a multi-strat, right? I'm gonna move up and down the capital structure from equities to fixed income. And maybe I'm gonna do a little bit of uh, capital structure arbitrage. I've seen this, seen this countless times. Smart people get very eager to learn new things. And that can sometimes be dangerous, especially as it relates to setting expectations. So, you know, we, we certainly, I think, understated the um, nature of or the, the, the change in context of him moving from prop desk to, um, uh, to being a standalone guy, because at least at this global investment bank, there was somebody who could, you know, sort of, you know, sort of pull, you know, take, take the cane from the side of the stage and say, okay, buddy, we're going to pull some capital back from you. Now, we confirmed that that almost never happened because his, his bets were so successful. But in retrospect, it's clear that the risk management protocol that he needed to have in place at the hedge fund was not one that he was actually experienced with. He was used to making enormous bets and riding them through and them coming out pretty well. That wasn't the case here when the nature of a stop-loss discipline was quite different than what he had experienced in the past. Um, we also had learned that, um, you know, given that he'd been around for a long time, he had traded through down markets, so he just wasn't a bull market guy. Bull markets are similar, but they're never the same. We didn't really have a roadmap to understand what could happen in a 2008 type liquidity crunch that was very different than 00 to 02 when you basically had a you know the 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 delta between value and growth flip 180 degrees and a ton of hedge fund strategies do quite well because they tended to be long value and short growth and so unlike tiger if they survived the late 90s you would be in a very good spot and the nature of the really concentrated positions in a bear market um, of any stripe, but especially a liquidity-driven one, 
can bite you really hard. And, and that's what happened. I mean, he was so heavily invested in some of the stocks that um, he, uh, he had such large positions that they were un unmovable. And just to throw more kerosene on the fire, he had a global mandate. He was an equity-oriented guy. We thought um, from our due diligence, given his track record, he was going to be focused mostly on Europe and Asia, where um, he had you know, made his bones over, over decades. The mandate for mostly any hedge fund is that you can do what you want, and you know, the documents are written as such. There's, there's really no recourse from, from that perspective. And what happened starting in early to mid-07, and especially into 2008, was that he began to see value in U.S. financials as U.S. financials began to roll over. And we know what happened between Q2 of 07 and Q4 of 08 uh, in terms of U.S. financials, obviously a, a catastrophe of, of biblical proportions in, in the capital markets. Uh, he was buying every tick down. He thought that more and more value was being created. And whatever skill we assessed at him reading balance sheets, he clearly didn't have. Um, oh, by the way, it was three-year lockup money. There was nothing we could do. Now that I've made myself yeah, probably yeah. sound like a complete moron to your global listenership, I'll, I'll stop and see if there's any particular okay. themes that um, uh, you'd like to dive into. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great point that the purpose of this uh, conversation is to discuss worst investment and I know, I know for sure you're a very successful guy, so I appreciate that you would discuss this. In fact, there's many people that just refuse to discuss their biggest mistakes, so hats off to you because I believe you've learned a lot from it. So basically, let, let me summarize some of the things, and I may ask a couple questions, and then we'll try to wrap it up, but um, there's so much to this. There's a few different points that I've written, some of them that would maybe question, some of them maybe just something to the audience. The first thing to the audience is that, as I always say, particularly within CFA, uh, from an ethical perspective, your job is to follow the guidelines that you've been instructed to follow, that you've agreed to follow, to follow your mandate. Your job is to have no fraud, misconduct, and all that. And if you followed those principles, particularly in the hedge fund space, ultimately, best who is saying, I'm going to take this risk. The point that I'm making is that it's sometimes it's easy to blame the person. The reality is that financial professionals, we do the best that we can. The second thing that was interesting is uh, the concept of scarcity came up a few times. And I think that what I would take away from this is that maybe scarcity is really more of a marketing thing. And we have to be careful not to fall on the influence of someone saying this is a limited time, only a limited number of people. And so I would say that my first thing is the scarcity uh, is something to be careful about. Now, one thing that you mentioned that professional investors will really recognize is there's also this urgency that's being put on yourselves and others at that time with tons of money being thrown, thrown at you to manage. So that just is a really, really difficult situation. Now, the other thing that I would take away as a lesson is that, and this is something I always say about small business in general, is that running a small business is so different from working within a company. 
the infrastructure that's within a company is just all there. And when you go and set up your own business, none of it's there. So your success is not just going to be, hey, I did my job really well at this company A, and now I'm going to go set up a company doing that. No, you need human resource skills. You need risk management skills. You need a lot of different skills. And you, you need structures. And sometimes large companies have these burdensome structures that we don't like, but they can be valuable in that case. The last thing I would just highlight is the idea of concentrated bets. Really, really, in the financial in the world, financial generally, we generally like we someone that's making concentrated, concentrated bets, but two things two really have to be considered. considered. The first, considered. One, is first one is when you're making when concontrated you're concentrated bets, bets, you've got to have stop have losses stop and your plan, plan. If something goes wrong, something, goes wrong. something can go wrong something really wrong. quickly. Really but even but if you're sitting on good risk management, management, if the market, if the market starts to crash, crash, you had a you great had saying that you said was positions were unmovable. You just uh-huh. can't do anything with those positions, and that can really hit, hurt you. But those are the, the main takeaways that I take from what you said. Is there anything else that you would add to that? The, yeah, the, 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 the scarcity one is really important, the, the point about potentially missing opportunities, because, you know, what's hot right now? Well, what's hot right now, you know, in, in, in the U.S. market among, you know, high net, especially high net worth investors is private investments. And, you know, you can throw a few thousand dollars into a venture or more than a few thousand dollars. And, and you see this being, you know, you, you hear it's, it's rare that you hear an idea and you say, that's the dumbest thing ever. It's like, huh? Oh, here's a smart person or a smart group. And they are raising a certain fixed amount of capital, usually not that much. And the potential upside is a lot. And the potential downside is, you know, zero. Uh, and that asymmetry actually can sound kind of attractive. You almost treat it as a gamble. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, they can put the screws on a little bit and say, you know, well, we, we, have, we have limited seats. We're raising a limited amount of capital. We've got a killer idea. And that sense of scarcity uh, and that sense of timing, um, I've realized, you know, in part through this experience, the one I've told you about from 10 years ago, but others, um, you gotta, you really have to check yourself. Um, it's really good to have other people. Uh, you gotta have your own discipline, but then you have to other have other people around you, coaches and counselors and colleagues and peers, who say, you know, um, what are you getting into, and is it really worth it? Um, it, it it's it's you you rarely, and, and this is a point for individuals, but it's really even a bigger point for careers and institutions you usually don't get fired or in any sort of trouble for a missed opportunity. You, you do get fired um, or in trouble for the kind of screw up that I you know, described here. Thankfully, it was a committee-based process. I didn't look good, others didn't look good. You know, like I said, it was on me uh, in terms of the decision. But um, so it was sort of just the nature of the business to take $100 million bets on guys that you hoped would, you know, generate alpha. The, the, this whole experience was the genesis for the investor's paradox because I really wanted to get into the psychology of decision-making. And so I, I, I know, you know, you don't want these podcasts to run too long, but there's the scarcity issue. There's dealing with the charisma of the portfolio manager and whether you like them. It's are there certain investment styles 
that you're attracted to. I know some people who love widely uh, diversified small position quant models, and I know other people who like chunky concentrated bets. Historically, um, through most of my investing career, I've liked the latter, and I've obviously um, toned that down given some of my experiences. But you, you kind of have to take stock of the types of things that really trigger you, both positive and negative, and, and recognize that there's going to be arguments and counter arguments on every investing dimension. And I think with when you have get experience, and especially when you make mistakes, and doubly especially when you mis make mistakes with other people's money, you, you can learn these things and end up, I think, in a better, in a better spot. Okay, so okay. Let's, let's get to this, the next part of the podcast, which is really one of my favorites, which is the actionable yeah. advice section. Mm -hmm. And yeah. basically, the question that I want to ask is, based on what you learn from this story, Mm -hmm. And what you continue to learn, given that this story was 10 years ago, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same thing? Honestly, my, my, my gut, uh, where I really, I think I feel most intensely or passionately about this is recognizing that if you're going to take a very sizable risk, um, like the one that we did um, in terms of the amount of capital, the, the, the duration of the lockup, uh, the, the nature, the risky nature of the underlying investment, you, you need belts and suspenders on top of belts and suspenders to make sure that you're comfortable with it. And you have to, and it feels crappy in the short term, you, you have to recognize that if you pass on the opportunity and it ends up becoming a home run, that's okay. Because if, if you wait for the next pitch, you know, Buffett said everything at some point. So whatever that line is about the fact that you can stand at the plate and wait for more pitches. So, you know, the number of people who were day one in Amazon or Microsoft or, or, or any of those types of stories, good for them. And, and the smart ones will tell you that was more luck than skill. But on this particular type of investment and now anything that I'm doing, publicly or, or, or privately, it's even for somebody who writes and teaches behavioral finance for a living, it is so easy to get wrapped up in the moment. And sometimes you just have to force yourself to walk away and say, I'm not going to do this today. I love that. I love in that. fact, my mother lives with me. My 80-year-old mother lives with me in Bangkok, Thailand. Mm -hmm. she's, she's sitting in the other room right now. And she summed it up. I think she summed it up even better than Warren Buffett many years ago when I was young. She said, just because it's cheap. You don't have you don't. to buy it. Now, this wasn't a case of it being cheap, but she used to always say that when I'd come back and go, it's on sale. Well, so, you know, it's a parallel situation because it wasn't cheap, but it was scarce. Yep, yep, yep. It's the scarce. And sometimes we feel really good about, you know, picking up something that others can't have. All right. Well, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Brian, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just stay frosty, you know, ma manage expectations well, and uh, you'll be in as good a spot as you can be. Well, 
That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth, fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.